Don't share care, helping you find experts, the top minds in health and medicine. It's Share Care Radio with Dr. Daria Long Gillespie on RadioMD.com. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Daria. I am back. We are switching gears right now because we're going to be talking about something that affects millions in the United States and is growing, and that is eating disorders. And eating disorders don't just impact the person that struggles with them, but they impact everybody in the whole family, which is good because there are things that the entire family and loved ones can do to help as well. So that's why this today's episode is for everybody and to help us with this i have a a, the best guest is going to be for this she's a registered dietitian nutritionist she's a certified intuitive eating counselor we're going to get into that because it's fascinating she specializes in nutrition therapy for eating disorders even has online courses about intuitive eating she's a blogger she has the food psych podcast and she's written for everything from gourmet to the food network her name is Christy Harrison, and Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Daria. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this is such, I mean, this is such a, a, an important topic. As an ER doctor, I see the impact of eating disorders you know, in my own patients, and it, you know, it really, truly does affect the whole family. It's such a, I'm so happy that you're involved in this, but what got you into this in the first place? Yeah, so like so many people and so many women in our society, I had my own struggles with eating, um, and I had sort of a winding path to to recovery and to becoming a dietitian. So um, I developed an eating disorder in 2003 in my last year of college, and it really persisted for the majority of my 20s without anyone diagnosing me or recognizing it. um, Because for most of that time, you know, even though I tried to reach out for help on several occasions, my weight wasn't low enough for my doctors and therapists to think mm-hmm. I like I had an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now know as a treatment professional in this area that you really can't tell whether someone has an eating disorder just by looking at them. So that's so true. Low weight is not a prerequisite. It's so true. And many people kind of think of the, the the preconceived notion that they may have of someone with an eating disorder with, you know, we think of you know, extreme anorexia nervosa, who is a very, very thin person. But there is a huge spectrum and so many other kinds of eating disorders. And, and many of them, like, it's so interesting that you mentioned that you kind of reached out. In what ways did you reach out? And what could have been done differently by those around you to recognize that those were cries for help? Yeah, I think um, the, the first couple ways I reached out were trying to broach the idea with my then therapist, um, who I started seeing when I was in college. And it sort of boggles the mind to me that someone who specializes in treating college-age students, like, wouldn't be more educated in, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of um, multiple ways that eating disorders can manifest. But mm-hmm. also, you know, back then in 2003, I think it was still less um, publicly well understood. And, yes. you know, I think this therapist was under the misconception that so many people still have that, like, you have to look emaciated in order to have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I told her, like, you know, my family has been, you know, worrying about me and giving me grief for how little I've been eating. And, you know, they're telling me I need to gain weight. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about that. And she, instead of saying, like, well, what does that mean to you? And what do you think about your own mm-hmm. behaviors? It was sort of like, well that seems crazy because you don't look thin enough to have a problem, you know, what's going on. Oh, wow. So I guess step one there is when, because it's hard to reach out, no matter what the issue is, it's really hard. It takes a lot of courage to probably even said that in the first place and open yourself up. So somebody listening, you know, if you hear that, that, that's, that's that cry for help. And so instead of kind of belittling it, 
and said, like you just mentioned, you know, how do you feel about that? Or just ask, be curious to learn more. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of be open and curious and not judgmental, I think is mm-hmm. huge because it really does take a lot for someone to, you know, take a, a step towards asking for help. And any little, you know, anything that, that someone else does in that tentative step to sort of mm-hmm. dissuade a person from asking for help, I think can be very, um, you know, can set them back pretty far. So yeah, I, I definitely took years more to open up to another therapist because of that experience. I was like, sure. well, I'm going to, I'm just going to put this away, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, and especially with the family, I, I know there can be a lot of denial around issues that, that there's a problem at, at all, but it really bears being curious about that. Did you reach a low point or what was your turning point in your recovery? I think I was very lucky just in sort of my life circumstances because I think the worst point of my eating disorder um, was, you know, it could have sort of gone deeper and mm-hmm. gotten worse where maybe people would have actually noticed because I was sort of doubling down on my restrictive eating. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I happened to be working at a newspaper. My first career was in journalism and, um, you know, just starting out in my career. And I met a guy that I worked with and got into a relationship and fell in love. And he was a food writer, and he was really into food and really curious about new restaurants and wanted to go on food adventures. And so, you know, I was 22 at the time. I was I was really eager to please and wanted to impress him. And I think I sort of stepped up to the plate and, like, went along with him in his food adventures um, despite my eating disorder. And I think that mm-hmm. was the first step out was, you know. Wow without even telling him really what was going on for me, I just sort of made the decision like, okay, when I'm with him, I'm going to eat this way. And Mm -hmm. because my career as a journalist was starting out too, and I didn't really have a specialty yet, I sort of fell into food writing as well. And so Mm -hmm. that was kind of the next major step because I I ended up breaking up with that guy about a year later, but um, I continued working as a food journalist for years after that. And that helped me sort of overcome some of the most significant restriction and, you know, dieting and rules around food because I wanted to do a good job with my work. And I also mm-hmm. had to go out to eat with coworkers a lot, so I wanted to look normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, again, just, you know, stepped up to the plate with uh, the job I had. But, you know, it, it really could have gone in such a different yeah. direction, I think. Given That's, yeah, what an, am- what an amazing story. It speaks to the power of, uh, you know, a, the, the, a love <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, different priorities, too. But you're right. It, it can go in so many different ways. And I really want to get into that, too, because, you know, when it comes to eating disorders for so many, it's not really about their weight. It's about control and so many other things. So l- let's talk about that. What do you see are some of the big motivating factors that could be red flags for somebody if they're a family member or a supporting mm-hmm. you know, friend? Yeah, I think, you know, the sort of drive for thinness and buying into the thin ideal are kind of like surface level manifestations that you might be able to catch in talking to someone. Like Mm -hmm. if they are really denigrating their body or feeling bad about how they look and express that to you a lot, or, you know, if they sort of seem to be um, glorifying people who are, you know, unnaturally thin or Mm -hmm. celebrities or, you know, people who look a certain way. Um, I think that could be, you know, if you, if you sort of catch that early, it could be a window into talking about, like, hey, what does this mean to you? Like, what is the value that you're placing on this? Because ultimately it's about something deeper than that. It's not really about the looks at all. It's about what the person believes they're going to get from the looks and mm-hmm. what they believe, you know, the happiness. 
happiness they believe will be created by changing their body. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we all want happiness and we all want, you know, connection and belonging. But I think, um, unfortunately, like the circumstances of many people's lives create disconnection and, you know, feeling like they don't belong or they don't have the support that they need. And it becomes sort of easy to turn to changing their body as, a, you know, they right. think that that's a way to get those things. Right. It's, an, it's one thing they can control. I want to talk about, as you mentioned, you know, th- th- of course, there's there's eating disorder that result in somebody being em- emaciated, but that's not the only type. So let's really quickly for all of our listeners do a quick overview of some of the major subtypes so that they know what to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. So anorexia, the, the pure restricting subtype is kind of what you're talking about with the um, emaciation. But actually, that mm-hmm. is the least common form of eating disorders and also the least common form of anorexia because there's other versions of anorexia that manifest differently. So there is mm-hmm. the binge purge subtype, which is like can look similar to bulimia, but, um, you know, is mostly about restriction, but occasional binging and purging as well. And mm-hmm. then there's actually um, in the new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there's actually a subtype um, called anorexia, um, atypical anorexia, which is all the sort of hallmarks of anorexia without the actual low weight. So people Hmm. have a fear of weight gain, um, you know, a a real restriction around food, fear of certain foods, maybe some overexercise as well, um, but they don't ever lose enough weight to sort of seem significantly underweight, um, but they may have been in a larger body before and just, you know, lost some weight or whatever, but um, you can't really tell from their weight. But the, the clinical picture is really anorexia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. And then bulimia is another one that's sort of known in the popular imagination, um, which involves eating large quantities of food and then purging, um, which, again, you know, is, is sometimes not caught for a long period of time because it right. doesn't actually change a person's weight. The, mm-hmm. You know, people with bulimia don't have significant weight loss. Sometimes certain people even have weight gain or they maintain their weight, so there's no statistical correlation between bulimia Mm -hmm. and anything to do with weight. So you can't tell by looking at someone that they have bulimia. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there is binge eating disorder, which is eating objectively large amounts of food and feeling out of control and, you know, not being able to stop, Mm -hmm. um, which, again, you know, sometimes can affect people's weight, but doesn't always. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's people in larger bodies who have it and people in larger bodies who don't and people Mm -hmm. in smaller bodies who have it and people in smaller bodies who don't. Um, Okay, go ahead, finish. Oh yeah, no, so I was just going to say, again, it's sort of, you know, it's about the behaviors and it's not about the weight. And that is exactly the point I was going to make and why it is so important that, you know, everybody pay attention to this is that just because it may not be physically manifested as emaciation and what we see does not mean that it's not still extremely harmful. For somebody who does yeah. be suffering from these things, um, so you know, and it can it just. What are other ways that it can affect their lives? Yeah, so I think the biggest sort of overarching way that eating disorders affect people's lives is to make them really small, to make their lives really small. Mm-hmm. So, yes, because they're only focused on one thing and fixated on it. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that fixation gets in the way of anything else that they enjoy. So I hear people say a lot, like these things that you know, should bring me joy and have always brought me joy, suddenly I can't enjoy or even engage in anymore mm-hmm. because I'm so fixated on how my body looks when I'm doing them or how yeah. people are judging what I eat or, you know, all these concerns mm-hmm. that are raging in their head that may not be obvious to the outside. 
Yeah. All right. So I want to get to what to do. And we've kind of talked about the signs and, and, you know, why it's so crucial and the impacts of these. But I want to tell how everybody how they can help, you know, help somebody who they think may uh, be struggling with an eating disorder. Number one, I want to talk about intuitive eating. This is something that I know you have an online course on and you're really an expert in this. What is it and how can somebody learn it? Yeah, so intuitive eating is a really cool model of how to relate to food and your body. Um, it's basically the style of eating we're all born knowing how to do, right? Mm, Babies yeah. buy when they're hungry and instinctually yeah. know how much to eat. And when you know, not. it's so fascinating. I had a conversation with somebody recently, and they were saying that we, we have that sense until we're around seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And then that intuition of just stopping when you're full, it, it, it dissipates and it's uh, overweighed by so many other things. Right, exactly, because cultural factors and social factors come in mm-hmm. to sort of get people away from that intuition. Mm-hmm. But it really is still there, you know, we're born having it, and it's, it's an adaptive function because it helps us, um, you know, stay healthy and keep going mm-hmm. in our lives. So, you know, we can get back to that if we take the time to learn to learn it and to sort of unlearn dieting and disordered eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've actually done a lot of studies now on intuitive eating showing that people who are intuitive eaters have all kinds of better health outcomes on, you know, health-related measures, health uh, factors that are related to food, like diabetes and heart disease and, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, but also, like, better well-being, better quality of life, um, better psychological functioning. So, Which makes sense. I mean, we there's so much evidence that shows how what you eat truly modifies the neurotransmitters and functions in your brain. Mm-hmm. So just as high fat, high sugar, and even diabetes and inflammation can harm it, this intuitive eating can restore that function. Exactly, yeah. And and sort of the thinking there is like when you get back in touch with your body's natural cues, um, you know, the sort of environmental factors like advertising or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, presence of, of fast food or yeah. high sugar, high fat foods, like doesn't really affect you as much because you yeah, know like, what you want and you go for that and then you mm-hmm. eat until you're satisfied. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it sounds great, but you're right. In today's environment, it's so hard. You can be full, but then you're sitting there. If you're watching TV and the new commercial comes on for, I don't know, Cinnabon or something, and suddenly you didn't even realize, but you're starving for a Cinnabon. So, I mean, not that that ever happens to me, but I've heard of it happening to people. <laughs> but so, okay, so how do we do this? Because, you know, I think we all want to get back to that intuitive notion because then it doesn't feel like deprivation it feels like i'm just doing what my body wants right exactly it's self-care it's not like self-control or depriving mm-hmm. yourself um you know i think it's a it's a pretty pretty long step from eating disorders to intuitive eating so usually people have to go through what's called nutrition rehabilitation in between and mm-hmm. get on a meal plan where they learn to eat sort of approximating their body's natural cues and then eventually they can start to notice those cues and modify the meal plan and, like, make choices as they as they see fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can, you know, that takes treatment definitely for eating sure. disorders. But for folks yes. who don't have a full-blown eating disorder and maybe have been dieting or, you know, some types of disordered eating um, that haven't really affected their lives, I think those are good candidates to start intuitive eating. And I think one of the biggest things that I like to start with is just, noticing, you know, trying to notice where your hunger is before a meal, where mm-hmm. your fullness is after a meal. And it's pretty amazing to even start tuning into that because 
in our society today, we, you know, get conditioned to sort of mm-hmm. ignore our hunger in yeah. all these different ways, whether from dieting and being told that your hunger is bad or, you know, a busy work schedule or a hectic home life where you just don't have time to tune into your internal needs. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a radical act even to just notice throughout the day, like, oh, my hunger is probably at a six right now. I should probably start thinking about food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. and, and then you can start making choices based on that. But I think the first step is just becoming aware. Yeah, and becoming aware afterwards as well, because how often do you eat something and you know, you're not paying attention, but then when you just take a moment and pay attention to how you feel afterwards, you often I sometimes realize, wow, like when I eat that, I don't feel great afterwards. Mm-hmm. But it takes a moment to let that register, because if you're running about on your day, you don't recognize that. Exactly. And it's sort of interesting, the interplay of hunger and fullness, because when you let yourself go too long and get too hungry, um, then you often end up overeating and getting too mm-hmm. full and feeling really bad after a meal, too. So it's, it's sort of a holistic system, you know, recognizing okay. where your hunger is, where your fullness is throughout the day can sort of mm-hmm. prevent these huge swings. Okay. And is there something really, what's the action that you may be supposed to take while you're eating to, you know... It's one thing to realize afterwards, I ate too much. But how can I use intuitive eating to prevent that from happening in the first place? Right, yeah. So I think one huge thing is mindfulness. So Mm -hmm. mindful eating is sort of a component of intuitive eating, and often those terms are used interchangeably. But mindful eating is really like a technique within intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's about just kind of slowing down and paying attention to how the food tastes, you know, how you feel throughout the meal, how full you are and tuning into your satisfaction level because mm-hmm. actually the research shows that you your food start, uh, stops tasting as good as you get fuller. So there's mm-hmm. sort of this um, decline in pleasure throughout the meal. So you can start noticing that and notice like, mm-hmm. is there a moment when this just tastes like nothing? And that might mm-hmm. mean you're getting full. Yeah, and th- that's so true. And the other thing I notice, you know, and I think is when you're, you're distracted, you're more likely to eat things with salt and sugar because you're mm-hmm. just not tasting the food the same way. Right, yeah, and, and oftentimes, too, if you're distracted, you're not noticing your hunger cues and maybe they've yeah. gotten really high. And, and mm-hmm. actually, when you're hungry and when you're deprived, you gravitate naturally towards foods that have high fat and high sugar because they're yeah. calorie dense and your body yes. wants to get, you know, the, the smallest amount or the, the largest amount of calories in the smallest. Yeah, it's evolution. Time. Christy, we are running out of time in 30 seconds for a family member of somebody suffering with ED. What's a great resource where they can start to get all this information? Yeah, my favorite resource is the National Eating Disorders Association and they're at nationaleatingdisorders.org. Um, They have a wealth of information about how to talk to someone with an eating disorder, um, what parents can do, and then also treatment resources. So, you know, help you get connected with the right providers. Wonderful. And, you know, for anybody out there with family members, do reach out. I know it's scary and it's a but you, you can be the one person that, that does turn around and, and does listen to your one loved one and help them. So check out the National Eating Disorder Association. Of course, check out Christy Harrison's website. It's christyharrison.com. Follow her on Twitter, C-H-R-1-S-T-Y Harrison, or on Facebook at Christy Harrison Nutrition. I'm Dr. Jaria. Follow me at Dr. Jaria and all of us here at ShareCare, Inc. Thanks for listening to ShareCare Radio and stay well. 